You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. And so we come now to uh, the book of Hosea, the beginning of the Minor Prophets. And we start a new series in the evening as well, and we will finish most of Hosea before the year end, before Christmas, and our Christmas series comes. Uh, But we will have a few bits of it to deal with in the new year. But uh, Hosea, like many of the prophets, is a challenging book. Uh, It deals with sin and judgment. And Hosea is stark in the way that it speaks of sin, the, the root of sin, of idolatry, is spiritual adultery of Israel breaking its covenant bonds and marriage with the Lord. But then in Hosea, it may be that some of the words in here are the most loving that the Lord speaks to his wayward people. Again, we we see judgment as the Lord hates sin, but his ways in which he calls his people back. And so we come now uh, to Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. And she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in a place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, and great shall be the day of Jezreel. So we come again this morning, sorry, again this evening to the book of Hosea. There's a lot of it that is, is bound within the context. Hosea is a prophet distinctly sent to the northern tribes, the ten tribes of Israel. You'll, you'll remember uh, from Israel's history that after Solomon, the, the kingdom split into two. And so you had Judah and Benjamin in the south. And then in the north, you had the other remaining ten tribes. And part of the, the, the ways in which the ten tribes sought to distance themselves from Judah and Jerusalem was by setting up altars and idols. 
And so Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, set up idols at the top and at the bottom of Israel, of the kingdoms, so that they would no longer need to go down to Jerusalem and worship, but could stay in their own land, separated and cut off. But obviously, this was a great sin, for Israel knew better than to worship false gods. But they continued, and most of the kings of Israel, I want to say minus a few, were pretty awful, leading the people further and further and further and further away from the worship of Yahweh. And so Hosea comes like a prophet of old. Well, sorry, he is a prophet of old, but he comes acting out his prophecies. One commentator said it is possible that at this time the people of Israel are so tired of hearing the words of the Lord that Hosea has to come and and viscerally and visibly before them show them what their sin of idolatry is like. That Hosea takes on the shame to himself, showing forth the shame that Israel should be experiencing. And so Hosea tells us that the word of the Lord came to him, that God spoke to him, commissioned him so that he would go forth, and he he gives us the times during the reigns of Uzziah or Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Really, we're talking about the 8th century B.C. here, from around 791 to to, to 687. Three of the kings listed, the first three of Israel, are all kings that in one way or another were trying to lead Judah away from the worship of Yahweh. But the last king here mentioned, you'll know, is Hezekiah, the one who brought about spiritual reform and the one who actually, through his prayers and through the power of the Lord, survives the Assyrian invasion, the the same invasion in 722 B.C. that wipes Israel off the map. And then Hosea lists one other king, a king of Israel or of the Samaria region, Jeroboam. It's actually Jeroboam II, the son of Joash. Now, interestingly enough, there are actually further kings of Israel, of the northern tribe. Jeroboam is quite possibly the last legitimate king. Because after his death, there are uh, puppet kings and there are people who are just murdering the kings one after another and setting themselves up in their place until finally uh, the last king of Judah is really just a a, a puppet in place and he's eventually imprisoned by the king of Assyria. Jeroboam's really the last legitimate king and, and after him, it's just pretty clear that Israel is doomed to fall. That, that old adage that, that so what, what happens to the king or the way that the king acts is the way it goes for the people. And so the state of Samaria and Judah is not great to say the least at this time. Actually, in, in Israel's time, it, it's actually a, great of, a time of great prosperity for them. And you'll see that as we go through Hosea, that it's actually that they're a relatively prosperous and they're attributing this prosperity to Baal. They're attributing this to the idols that they worship. They've abandoned their first love of God, and they've violated their covenant vows, just like marriage vows. And so throughout Hosea, we'll see the ways in which God will sue for divorce against his wayward people. And it's in the midst of that and that the, 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 the political climate, uh, Israel, you must remember, is, is this uh, trade route 
between two greater nations, the Assyrians or Nineveh up at the top and Egypt down at the bottom. And Israel is, is not a very powerful country. And so they are, are stuck between these two great powers and at their whims. And so in many ways, when we see Israel's idolatry, there should be an, an air of sympathy to them. They're, they're prosperous, but in great need, in great need of, of political and economic power. And that is the, what they place their hopes in. And so with all of that, that's where God commissions Hosea. And through Hosea, the, the first part of this, we'll see uh, four signs that Hosea would demonstrate to the people. The first one is he marries a harlot. He marries uh, this woman who has committed adultery time and time again and likely had a reputation around and could have even been a, a prostitute or a cult prostitute. So verses 2 through 3, he marries her. And then three children are born to her at various times. And Hosea is commanded to give them these names. As we go through that, you'll, you'll have to remember that as Hosea, he's a prophet of the Lord. He has a special commission just like the kings and the priests, the prophets were recognized in Israel, and he's recognized as a prophet, and people know him, and yet he is married to a harlot. And he has these children whose names bring condemnation and judgment upon Israel. And so at the beginning, God speaks to Hosea, and he tells him, right, again, this is a, a holy, this is a good and faithful Jew who wants to be righteous in all that he does, and he is commanded to marry a harlot, to take a wife of whoredom, a woman to have uh, brought shame upon her community and upon herself. And then Hosea would marry her, bringing that same shame upon himself, binding himself to her, knowing full well her reputation. It's almost hard to imagine the heartache that Hosea would go through with this request. And yet, like prophets, like the, yet we see in the life of faithful prophets. So he went, and he did, and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore a son to him. He is obedient to this incredibly tough and, and rather, let's be honest, strange command. And what we see in this first sign, God says the reason you're to do this is that the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Why is Hosea to do this? He's to do this because Israel is not just polluting themselves with their sin, but that that pollution is overflowing. It's actually rubbing off, as it, as it were, off on all creation itself. They are polluted wherever they go. The land is stained with sin, and creation groans for redemption. Israel's sin has bigger ramifications than she could even imagine. And so you can think of the, the shame and the heartache that is brought upon Hosea, but he's to be a picture and to, a window to look at the character of God. Because if you know the history of Israel, Israel's never been faithful. Israel's never been holy. Israel has never been a, a good nation. Israel's good is precisely in the fact that the Lord has chosen her. Her goodness resides in her covenant with Yahweh, not in herself. And again, if you know the history of Israel, that throughout it all, God has been incredibly long-suffering and forbearing. 
And even here, you can almost empathize when you see the, 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 what Hosea has to go through and then understanding what the Lord has to go through with his wayward people, that surely he should just divorce them and be done with them. And yet, as we'll see, the Lord still loves his people amazingly, amazingly. I think one of the major themes that Hosea and, and really the first six minor prophets bring up for us is they just help us to feel sin. Not to know of sin as, a, as an intellectual object hanging out there. Yes, it's rebellion against God. As the catechism says, what is sin? It is, oh, I'm going to mess it up. I'm not going to try to say it. Never try to say things you memorize. But, but, but Hosea helps us to feel the gravity of sin, to understand the depth of what sin is, to understand that, that all of our sin is focused really on idolatry. Right? We sin because we want something greater than the Lord. I could argue that sin itself is idolatry. And Hosea helps us feel what idolatry actually is. John Calvin famously said that our our hearts are idol factories. You can imagine factories that produce cars and airplanes moment by moment, sending them out. Our hearts, moment by moment, seem to be producing idols for us to worship. And so then in the life of Hosea, he has three children born to him. Again, children who are born in this uh, situation that would bring shame upon them and upon Hosea. And the first of these children, these three children, his name is Jezreel. His name is Jezreel. It means... Uh, God will sow, but here the name Jezreel is being used because there's a prominent valley of Jezreel. If you know where the Sea of Galilee is, some ways down from that, there's a a valley of Jezreel. It was here uh, many years ago that the king, Jehu, uh, engaged in this battle and murdered many people. And so God says, name him Jezreel. Name him Jezreel. For God will shatter Israel's might. The very place where Israel may have thought that they had had triumphed, where their king had triumphed over his enemies, now will be the place where the Lord will shatter all of their might. Israel throughout its time has trusted in others instead of in the Lord. They have trusted in the Egyptians. They have trusted in the Assyrians. They have trusted in their own might and prosperity. And the sad reality is the one thing they didn't do is trust in the Lord. And so the Lord in his kindness, will strip them of all their support structures, which in the end were never truly supportive. And so when this child is born, his name is Jezreel. As Hosea would, would, would walk around the towns or cities, word of him would have spread of what had happened in his life and the son named Jezreel. That everywhere he walked, this child would have been a sign of Israel's impending doom. I mean, Hosea, again, is publicly recognized as a prophet. It would certainly be known that he has publicly had this union with a prostitute. And then this child throughout his life would go forth showing that that Israel is under a death sentence. And in fact, in 722 BC, it all comes true. The Assyrians come in and lay waste to Israel, and it will never be rebuilt. 
and any shape or capacity as it once existed. Yes, Samaria will be a country that will eventually exist, but it'll never be Israel of old again. And you can almost stop there. Israel, it's under a death sentence, but the Lord doesn't stop. There's a second child now born. As soon as Jezreel is weaned, we can assume that a second child, a daughter, comes, and her name is Lo-Ruhamah. Lo in Hebrew means not. Ruhamah means mercy. So the child's name is now No Mercy. Again, you can imagine as Hosea wanders around Jezreel or impending doom. And now this new child that you hadn't seen before, whose name is now No Mercy. That Samaria will receive no mercy. No mercy. The Lord says, because I will have no more mercy. I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. I mean, again, let those words sink in. The Lord who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger. Now this child, as a sign, speaks to the fact, in a sense, God's mercy has run out. That Think about this. Without mercy, Israel has no true protection and no more hope. The words of the prophets may have no effect on people. These children would be permanent signs they just can't ignore. Doom and destruction, no mercy and no forgiveness. Because Israel is a prostitute who loves everyone else but God. But here there begins to be hope shining through in verse 7. The Lord says, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And so mercy is shown to Judah, and, and I believe there's two ways in which throughout Judah's history we see this mercy shown. The first one is in the life of Hezekiah, the last king of Judah that Hosea mentions. Again, he's the king who Israel, uh, sorry, Judah is surrounded. Their, their land is being increasingly encroached upon by the mighty Assyrian army, the, the same army that had totally laid waste to their neighbors and brothers, the Israelites. And then they, they gather around the city, and Hezekiah is, is captive with his people in the city. There is no hope for him. His, uh, the besieging army even taunts him regularly. Well, we, we have empty horses we'll give you if you can sit, put men upon them. And in the midst of this, Hezekiah turns to the Lord, prays to the Lord, and the Lord shows mercy. And just as he says here, not by sword or war or horses or by horsemen, but by merely the power of God alone, Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem are saved. But I think the second thing we see, this mercy, is that Judah is brought back and restored from exile in a, in a way that is different from the way that Israel is brought back. Because again, as we've seen in the, the book of Acts, it's it, the true Israel, the one who worships still at the temple, are those predominantly who came back from the Judean exile. Samaria is made up of really a hodgepodge of different people. And so the Lord has shown mercy. 
Judah continues to be this proper, if you will, continuation of the Israelites. Judah is saved solely by mercy, by the hand of Yahweh, not by any might. You can see the contrast. God breaks the bow of Israel, their rather puny military might. And God saves Judah against an invading army with nothing but his word. You know, and it's easy. I think it's easy for us to look upon this and go, yes, I would trust in the Lord, come what may. But how many of us, when an army is bearing down upon us, we're, we're captive inside a city, how much of us would in that moment trust in God? It's easy to look back in hindsight. It's much harder in the moment. But we see here in the naming of this child, no mercy, that what the Lord is trying to teach them is mercy. It follows repentance. Hezekiah was repentant and, and led Israel in this repentance. But it was the northern tribes that refused to repent. They refused to listen. And they continued in their sin. Whereas in God's mercy, Judah repents, even if she never fully averts destruction that's coming. And again, I think what the prophets highlight for us is that God's mercy, it's not something to be trifled with, but to be held onto with humble obedience. And the point is God has offered mercy. God has been slow to anger. God has repeatedly called his wayward bride back, but she has refused. And it's not only that she's refused, but she has tried to find her salvation in other gods and other lovers. I mean, you can imagine this, that she's basically, Israel is basically spit into the hand of God as he's reaching out trying to help her. And it continues. There is a third child, Loamani, or not my people, in verses 8 through 9. Right, these, these children, impending doom, the removal of mercy, and now the worst of all. This just comes one after another. But as you can think about this, and those who have had more than one child, that doesn't happen one after another. There's a, a long and continuous time frame here for Israel to feel and feel the weight of all of this sinking in. And after she'd weaned no mercy, she bore a son and called his name not my people. It really sounds like one punch leads to another, leads to another. And the Lord lays this on his people. Call his name not my people, because you are not my people, and I am not your God. I mean, this is certainly the worst of all. I mean, if you think about what God is saying. No longer is he saying, my people, hear my voice and come back to me. He is now saying to them, you shall now be referred to as not my people. You no longer belong to me, nor I to you. It's, it's almost as if the covenant itself is unraveling before them. And Hosea wants us to hear these words. You are not my people because I'm no longer your God. I am no longer your God. The end of verse 9, it's a little bit tricky 
to translate, and I'm by no means a Hebrew scholar. I did text David during the week for a brief bit of help. But it could be read one of three ways. It could be read as, I am not your yours, emphatically reminding them that I no longer belong to you. Or as the ESV translates it, I am not your God. But it could also be read as, I am not I am to you. It's the same words used in Exodus 3.16 where God gives his divine name to Moses saying, who shall the children of Israel know? I am has sent you. And you could read verse 9 as, I am not I am to you any longer. I am no longer Yahweh to you. Regardless of whatever way we translate it, they can no longer rely upon God. They are now adrift and abandoned. And in the Hebrew, actually, this is the end of chapter 1. And so we have these three children, doom, wrath, and abandonment. Three children, three signs showing forth the consequences of Israel's sin as a wayward prostitute wife. And this is the beginning of the minor prophets. And really, the first six minor prophets, sin is what's going to be dominating these But interesting, in the movement of the minor prophets, the next three, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, will be dominated by the theme of punishment. But the last three, the last three will be about restoration that is coming. And actually, we'll see that even in our text today in verses 10 and 11, that amazingly, there is mercy and restoration, which is the last theme of the minor prophets of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. But I think before we move on to verses 10 and 11, it's good to be reminded and to think seriously about sin. That's Hosea's point. At its sin, at its core, sin is idolatry. It's us choosing something over our relationship with God. I mean, it's often easier to see the big sins. But it's harder to see sins like anger, time management, or caring for the least of these, or caring for those who need caring for the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the sojourner. Or as another minor prophet Micah put it, he said, has he told you, O man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Well, verses 10 through 11, we have this salvation being offered forth, and really Hosea is going to go back and forth between judgment and restoration, judgment and redemption. Because if you think about the ways in which the covenant promises were given, can God break his word in the end? And the wonderful answer is no. If God has promised something, it will come to pass. That doesn't mean that the current generation will not be punished for their sins, just like the wilderness generation. I mean, just the same we see today that just because someone calls upon the name of Jesus Christ doesn't mean they're actually saved. Not all of Israel is Israel. But what it does mean, what Hosea will show is that that all those who truly belong to Yahweh, all those who are united to Christ, all of those whom he has saved will never be abandoned. And notice in verse 10 and 11, we have salvation for Israel And salvation for Judah. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, 
It shall be said to them, children of the living God. Right? Instead of poetic justice, which Israel deserves, we had this grand reversal. The promises of Abraham are, are coming forth again, are, are rising as if from the ashes. That Israel will be given just as, as much as Judah. Instead of being wiped out off the face of the earth, they will be prosperous once more. But instead of being called my people again, which you would think as a reversal here, God says actually they will be referred to as children of the living God. Not just people in a generic sense, but children of the living God. This is family language, household language, the language of sons. And then in verse 11, salvation to Judah. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Salvation occurs actually through Judah and Israel being reconciled and brought back together. And it's not this, this grand promise of restoration, but of a whole restored world. Hosea speaks of the fact that under this new leader, this new head will come. He will then unite Israel, Samaria, and Judah together. It's another theme that comes out in the Minor Prophets. And later, he'll refer to this leader as a king. And through this great king, the kingdom will be restored. And in the valley of Jezreel, the day of Jezreel. And again, Jezreel means God will sow. And so this idea is, in a sense, God will then plant his people, and they will grow, and they will prosper, and he will reap this great harvest, which brings us back to verse 10. And this inverts this great disaster in the valley of Jezreel. And now Jezreel becomes a sign of hope and a promise of restoration. And so suddenly all three children have their names inverted. God will show mercy. They will be called children of the living God. And the day of Jezreel would be a day of salvation and great joy. So at the beginning in chapter 1, we see sin, punishment, and anger. Sorry, restoration. Sin, punishment, and restoration. God is merciful and slow to anger. But God has revealed himself as just and jealous. Hosea gives us, really, God's view of sin. God's view of idolatry. God's view of, of choosing these other things and the way in which they're ultimately destructive in our lives. The great truth of idolatry is that we are what we worship. Right? The, the drug addict worships drugs. The career-oriented person worships money and status. And internet celebrities worship likes and fame. And in every single case, the worst thing that can happen to all of them is they get what they desire. And that's what's happening to Israel. While prosperous, they felt they deserved these blessings. They felt that they earned them. And they also thought that these blessings were coming not from Yahweh, but from the worship of Baal. And again, they're in this precarious situation between Assyria and Egypt, trying to seek all the help that they can find outside of the Lord because they're genuinely worried. I mean, just imagine if Liechtenstein held a great major trade route between Russia and China. You would be worried if you lived in the middle of that. And both situations are taxing on your trust. 
prosperity and uncertainty. And it's idolatry that's led them further and further and further away. And the sad reality is, is Yahweh was the only one that they could count on. He was the one who rescued them. He's the one who sustained them. He's the one who loved them. And yet in all of this, and I'll close here, all of this, God's love is actually stronger than their disobedience. That doesn't mean every Israelite trusted in God. Many didn't, but some did. Not all of Israel is Israel. Paul would look at this inclusion, these these people who were not a people, but being brought into God's people as the inclusion of the Gentiles, actually, in Romans 9. In Acts 8, we saw the restoration of Israel and Judah under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus Christ we see love and justice. Christ was crushed for our spiritual adultery so that we might become children of the living God. Amen. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K. 